Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Well, the end is nigh. Of our submission period, that is. You've got until the end of the day, October 31st, to submit your stories. By now, I'm sure you know the drill. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. Also, for those incredible patrons eligible for our fall swag pack, you'll be happy to know I'll be sending them out in the next day or two. We've got some haunting original artwork from artist Jane Revae, created exclusively for Tales to Terrify. I'll post a peek at some of it on our social media. But in the meantime, I highly recommend checking out her Patreon. Patreon.com slash Jane Revae. You can also see more of her work at her website, janereve.com. Links to both are in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jane, for crafting these disturbing visual delights for us. Speaking of Patreon and thank yous, our shout-out this week goes to Susan Hayden and Allie G. Your generous support is the flickering candle that lights our way through these darkened passageways of the imagination. This week, we're taking a little pit stop in a tiny little village. A village I've personally driven through maybe a hundred times in my life, but I've never once stopped there. Traveling between the city of Calgary, where I grew up and most of my family still lives, and the city of Saskatoon, 
where I've lived now for a dozen or so years, it's a relatively flat, uninteresting drive. Other than the badlands of Drumheller, there's not a whole lot of variety in the landscape, aside from the occasional rolling hill or meandering turn of the road. Except, that is, for the tiny village of Flaxcombe. Nestled in a little gully, the main highway travels right through Flaxcombe, dips down fairly steeply for what must be only a handful of blocks before rising back up again and continuing on. At the bottom of that dip are a smattering of houses and old gas station that, to be honest, I don't even know whether is still in operation, and a few other buildings. For the most part, it's a perfect example of the sort of isolated, emaciated little villages still clinging to the prairie landscape around the province. I imagine the town looked much the same that snowy evening when Robert's big sedan crested the rise and began its descent into the little valley. He'd been driving for most of the afternoon, and with winter hovering just beyond the horizon, the day had turned dark early and fast. He'd been struggling to stay awake and alert for the last hour. The way the light, swirling snowflakes rushed into his headlights, like moths to torchlight, was mesmerizing. And a few times, he'd caught his blinks turning uncomfortably long. Cracking the window and letting the sharp, crisp air kiss his face had helped, but he had a few hours left to go. The larger town of Kindersley couldn't be too far ahead, but he was fading fast, and the ebb and flow of the early winter storm seemed to be doing more flowing than ebbing. Coming over the rise and spotting the warm glow of the small diner against the cold twilight couldn't have been a more comforting sight. The tires of the old sedan crunched to a stop on the icy gravel of the small parking lot, and Robert breathed an audible sigh of relief as he slid the car into park. He climbed out of the car and stood for a moment in the chill night air. It was still in the little valley, sheltered from the wind, and the gentle snow floated down to form a seamless, downy blanket. The evening was perfectly silent, and he cringed at the squeal and clunk of the car door as he slammed it shut. Stepping through the door of the diner, it was even more cozy and inviting than it had seemed on the outside. Nothing fancy. A typical small-town diner, with a couple of vinyl booths edged in chrome and knick-knacks hanging from the walls. Delicious warm smells wafted from the kitchen. Simple smells, like the place itself. Coffee, buttered toast, and was that pecan pie? There was a deeper smell, too. Something underneath it all. Something rich and smoky. Barbecue? Robert knocked the snow off his shoes at the door, then found himself a seat. He was the only customer there, probably lucky the place was even still open in a small village like this. He took a seat at the counter, picked up a menu, and began to leave through it. The standard sort of diner items. Bacon and eggs, chef salad, hot hamburger sandwich. He found his mouth starting to water. He could smell that subtle smoke aroma again, wafting up from the menu in his hands. His stomach rumbled loudly, and as if in answer, a woman's voice came from the other side of the little pass-through window into the kitchen. I'll be with you in a minute. She emerged a moment later with a fresh pot of coffee in one hand and a set of napkin-wrapped utensils stuffed in a coffee cup in the other. Caught us just in time. We were about ready to close up, she said, spreading the utensils on the counter and filling the coffee cup without asking. Oh, sorry, 
It's been a long drive, and don't worry yourself about it. That's what we're here for. Nothing on this menu we can't whip up real quick for you. She smiled. Cream? He nodded, and as she added a generous splash to his cup, another whiff of the smoky smell rose up off her apron. You have a special today? he asked. Sure do. Denver sandwich and fries. He hesitated. He'd expected something barbecued. Ribs, maybe? I'll give you a minute with the menu, she said, mistaking his confusion for indecision. She disappeared back around the corner into the kitchen. Actually, he called after her. Miss, I think I'll just... Miss? She must not have heard him. So he waited, sipped his coffee, finished his coffee, and still she didn't reappear. Excuse me, he called, leading over the counter to be heard better in the kitchen. No answer. He got up from his stool and tried to peer around the corner, called again, and finally made his way into the kitchen. It was empty the oven off, and the grills cold. The smoky smell was stronger here, though. He checked the bathrooms and the cooler. He checked out the back door, the office, and in the cleaning closet. There was nothing, no one. Had she really gone home for the night and left him here? Left the place unlocked and the lights on? He'd scoured the restaurant and not seen any indication she'd ever been there at all. Even the coffee pot she'd poured him from not five minutes earlier was empty and cold. It was strange and frustrating, but at least he didn't feel tired anymore, he reasoned. He grabbed his coat and headed back out into the night. Wiping the snow from the windshield and climbing into his car, he glanced back to the diner. The inviting glow had faded. The lights were still on, but they seemed somehow dimmer. Backing out of the lot and onto the highway, he felt a sense of relief wash over him as he pulled up the other side of the valley and out of Flaxcombe. And by the time he finally reached Kindersley, any uneasiness he'd felt had become a memory. He was well and truly famished. He found himself a seat at the all-night diner attached to the truck stop. Surrounded by a scattering of rough-looking long haulers, the place didn't feel nearly as homey as the little diner he'd left, but it did feel more normal. Hey, do you know anything about that little diner in Flaxcomb? He asked the waitress as she took his order, a Denver sandwich and fries. I tried to get a bite there, but the waitress just disappeared. It was the weirdest thing. The grizzled older woman looked at him with a wry smile. I can only imagine you'd have trouble getting service there, she said, eyebrow raised. Especially considering it burned to the ground a few years ago. Either you fell asleep at the wheel and were dreaming, or you were somewhere else, friend. Far as I know, that's still just an empty parking lot. Our first story for the evening comes from S.W. Pichota. S.W. Pichota lives in Colorado, in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains of the United States. He is a writer and a visual artist. He loves sitting alone in the early morning hours while sipping coffee and watching the dog sleep, sitting at the bar while looking into a pint of craft beer, and sitting in his studio creating works of fiction and visual art. Obviously, he enjoys sitting. Of course, there's also hiking with his wife and walking said dog, and tennis or skiing, but yes, it all usually ends with him finding a good place to sit and dream. View his artwork and blog at silo34.com. Children of the Night 
Join me for S.W. Pichota's The Ages of Death, a Tales to Terrify original. Death as an old woman. She sags inside her moss-green dress, her winter coat a fossil gray, faded and tattered. Her hand clutches the cane she doesn't bother to use, letting it drag behind her as she shuffles up to the ticket kiosk. One fare for the blue line. The cashier makes the transaction, his eyes tracing the heavy lines on her face. Their fingers nuzzle in the exchange. He snatches his hand away. She has a craving for hard candy. She turns and walks toward the snack shop across the great hall, moving through the weekend crowd. The travelers stream around her before slipping into pools near the terminal gates. She lifts her hands from her sides and touches them as they pass by her. It feels good to make contact, but the darkness of eternity covers her with a glaze that flakes from her fingertips. Death settles like a powder onto jackets and floral print dresses. By Monday morning, hundreds of them will suffocate in their beds, lungs clogged with pus and black fluid. You tell yourself that your innate prejudice will save you from such a death. The old and infirm are repulsive, and easy to avoid. You're inclined to keep company with the young, people more like yourself, lifting fluted glasses at wine bars and sunning on verandas with friends. You surround yourself with the strong and the beautiful. She will not catch you so easily. Death as a Beautiful Woman Dark hair and green eyes. Loose folds of fabric lay creamy over her gingerbread skin. She steps across the warehouse floor, her hips weaving to an imagined bachata. Side together, side tap. Her rhythm is mesmerizing and hints at ill-fated love affairs. Side together, side tap. When she laughs, the earth finds a new orbit around her smile, and people are pulled into her warmth. She takes her place among the 23 Dominicans, sewing in the garment factory near the shipping docks. Monday through Friday, she works the machine closest to the door, sewing hems into skirts and trouser legs. On Wednesday morning, One of the women begins to bleed. By lunchtime, they all hemorrhage from whichever hole or slit proves easiest for the flow of blood. Someone has the idea to take needle and thread to close the mouth, the eyes, and each hole in turn. The last clutch of women sits holding themselves, sewn up tightly, watching death sewing and humming at her machine. Side together, side tap. She sings Cuando Yo Me Muera, because although she is young, 
She is patient and has learned to wait. Death like this is harder to avoid, but it can be done. With determination and vigilance, one can cloister behind high walls. A long monastic tradition exists to protect the faithful from this septic world. For a time, prayer and candle meditations will help you forget about eating and drinking and fucking. The pious can abstain for a lifetime, but they possess a devotion that proves too difficult for most. You should pray that she will grow bored and move on quickly. Death as a young girl. Now that you're familiar with death, you might believe that you will recognize her when she comes for you. You look into the crowd of strangers watching for a cough or pale complexion. You take note when a co-worker complains of sore muscles or a chill in the air. You remain wary. Keep your family close and others distant. This is a time to pull inward and take care of your own. You pick up the children from school and reseal the windows and doors. Your wife uses bleach and water to disinfect the countertops and wash the linens. Cupboards are stocked with food and supplies. Friends understand that you will be unavailable, because times like this call for drastic measures. The children are restless. They miss their grandmother. They want to play outside. One evening, your daughter bursts into the room, streaming a red ribbon overhead. She jumps and twirls, letting the ribbon spiral into a crimson helix. You reach out for her, but she pivots and fades. The ribbon curls and weaves away. Her girlish laughter fills the air. You try to call for her, but her name comes out a cough. Just something small to clear the throat. A metallic taste sits lightly on your tongue. The child dances faster, revolving, gyrating. The ribbon whirls with a feverish red, and the walls twist and spin around you and a cold breeze shudders through the room. It seems that death has found you, after all. That was S.W. Pichota's The Ages of Death as read by Josie Babin. Living in that formerly abandoned house on the corner, the one across the street from the cemetery, the one with all those cats lounging about, you will find Josie, happily narrating horror stories. No one has seen her human companion lately, but the cats do look well-fed. Not that those things have anything to do with one another. In between stories, she works on a long list of house projects and car projects. But best of all, she gets to work on lab projects, growing cells into medicine, hopefully making the world a little healthier in the not-so-far-off future. If you're ever in San Diego, stop by to say hi. She'll introduce you to her cats. Thank you, Josie. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Our second story tonight comes from Arthur Davis. Arthur Davis is a management consultant who has been quoted in the New York Times and in Crane's New York Business, taught at The New School, and interviewed on New York TV News Channel 1. Over a hundred original tales have been published in 80 journals. He was featured in a single-author anthology, nominated for a Pushcart Prize, received the 2018 Write Well Award for Excellence in Short Fiction, and, twice nominated, received honorable mention in the Best American Mystery Stories 2017. Find out more about Arthur at talesofourtime.com, on his Amazon author page, and at the Poets and Writers Organization. Links to all of these are in the show notes. Listen with me, children of the night, to Arthur Davis's The Unwelcome Guest, first published in Dark Moon Digest, March 2013. Hatch watched the lone fly coming straight for him. It stopped its diving assault just short of the tip of his fishing pole and hovered watchfully. I will skewer you. I will cut you to ribbons, you fool. I will make you dance for your dinner, plead for your life, beg for mercy. But there will be none. Not today, not ever. He said in his best mocking French accent as he brandished his flimsy bamboo pole like a dueling foil at the fly. The fly withdrew to a safer distance as the pole in the fishing line flailed about. Donald Hatch did not speak a word of French, but felt impersonating the language lent authenticity to his display of contempt. The pole nearly slipped out of Hatch's left hand as he repeated his thrust and began to laugh. But he managed to wrap his fingers back around the narrow cork grip without losing the bottle of beer in his right hand. Zap! he said proudly as the fly approached the tip of his steadying pole. You taunt me. Challenge me. Ridicule me, he said, slurring the derisive word until it bore no resemblance to the tone of its original construct. Just keep away from me. As the pole steadied, the fly began a slow, purposeful descent along the shaft down from the tip, wafting left and right, over and under the pole, as though still unsure of its safety, until it finally alighted on the chrome fishing reel. Smart-ass little shit, he said, flicking it away with his index finger. 
but the fly anticipated his inept counterattack, feigned right, and looped back on the reel like a seasoned prize fighter dodging a badly telegraphed blow. Hatch shot out his hand and grabbed for the fly, but it simply flew higher, out of reach. He leaned forward and it dropped off to his left. He went to snatch it out of the air, and each time it evaded his tired grasp. He was surprised at his adversary's dexterity. Another fly passed close to his head, but flew back out to the center of the lake that swarmed with them at this time of the morning. This one was more obvious about its intentions. It was early, possibly not more than 8.30, and already the August day was warm and thick with moisture. By noon, it would be impossible to breathe. By then, he would be at work teaching ungrateful, pimply morons to spell and identify verbs from adjectives. Maybe if he could get himself off the dock without falling into the lake, find the keys to his truck, and drive the eight miles to Laramore Junior High School without speeding by the security gate. And if he could park his truck without sideswiping another. He lifted his second beer to his lips and took the balance of the bottle in a long series of sweet gulps. He could hear it drop down his gullet, feel it warm his gut. Either you had one, or you were a pansy. Jennings, his old drinking buddy from Altoona, Pennsylvania, bragged, A gut says you are not afraid to step up and take a gulp from the juices of life. Hatch didn't have a gut. His metabolism kept him rail thin even at 38, no matter what he ate or how much he drank. But there were other ways he could prove himself a man. He pulled the neck of the third bottle across the wood plank underfoot, until it caught the edge, hooking on the bottle cap and ripping it from the top of the bottle. He finished off the third bottle without taking his eye off the fly that continued to dance brazenly around the reel. You got a gut, asshole, or are you one of them pansy flies? He asked, ending the question in booming laughter. Hatch thought the fly pulled back as his laugh gradually increased in volume. He tried laughing again falsely this time, to see if it had the same effect. But he must have been wrong. It was the beer. If he drank too early in the morning, which he often did of late, then the effect was more profound. His body parts began to function on their own, with an alarming, uncontrollable independence. The fly buzzed around his right hand, then, quite unexpectedly, as if it had designed its day with this one foolish stunt in mind, shot at Hatch's chest and slipped between the buttons in the crack of his shirt. He dropped the pole and frantically reached in and searched with his hand until most of the buttons were torn from his shirt. He jumped around on the dock as if he'd been attacked by a swarm of killer bees, then pulled his shirt from his pants and ripped off his t-shirt. Come on, come on, he repeated as if he couldn't say it fast enough. In his haste, he had kicked the two bottles of his six-pack into the lake, which only reddened his frustration. He caught one in his hand before it rolled into the water and propped it up next to one of the vertical posts supporting the pier. He was sweating, out of breath. He couldn't remember what he was doing before he kicked the beer overboard. This wasn't like the incident last year with the ants over at Bridgham High School. That was, as Doc Winters puts it, a result of too many drinks over too many years. But Hatch was never positive that he wasn't really attacked by the fire ants. He scratched and scratched for days broke into waves of cold sweat and uncontrollable shaking. Every inch of his body was covered in ulcerating welts as he fought them off. In exhaustion, he relented and accepted his temporary madness for what it was. Questionable. But this was different, yet there was no fly. Maybe it was caught in his crumpled shirt, or maybe it got away when he was searching for it. And then he noticed a sinister speck sticking to the skin about eight inches to the right of his navel. One moment it was there, the next it was gone. It had burrowed into his flesh. He watched, fascinated and confused. But he wasn't hysterically frantic anymore. A drop of blood fell from the wound, but there was no discomfort. Then the fly was gone. Disappeared. Hatch looked around, but he was alone, half naked, with a tiny hole in his right side. His shirt and t-shirt coiled around his feet. He became nauseous and fell dizzy to the dock, making sure not to lose the last bottle of beer. He picked it up, yanked back the cap, and took a deep, reassuring gulp. He was never going to make class by nine o'clock. He was going to be fired. 
It was the third time this month he wasn't there to substitute for absent summer school teachers. He would have to move again, falsify documents and his teaching credentials. No one ever checked them anyway. All they wanted was a body to serve their needs, just like the fly. He touched the wound. Another drop of blood dripped. He picked at it. Then he pushed his index finger into the wound and it sank into his side. He was startled. Dumbstruck with surprise, he pulled out his finger. It was red. He wiggled his finger as if he had discovered a remarkable new instrument. He plunged it into the hole and pulled it out. He repeated the process several times until he was certain of himself. The hole in his side was now the width of his index finger. Fortunately, depending on your point of view, Hatch's fingers were quite thick. His wrists were thick, as were his hands. Whenever anybody commented on his fingers or wrists, and a woman was about, he would say, That's not all about me that's thick. Only his thumb was heavier. As thick as the handle of a hammer, his first wife said once. He thought it was a reason for pride. Later he found out that she only spoke about her husband to others in one tone. Derisively. He looked around again as if some of his friends were lurking in the bushes prepared to proclaim him the butt of a practical joke. But he was alone. He pressed his fingers around the rib cage on his right side. It didn't hurt. He inserted his index finger up to the base knuckle and probed about. He could feel his rib cage, one rib, then another. He hooked his finger and thought he could make out the walls of his stomach. He was fascinated by what he was doing, then remembered what had turned him into such grotesque behavior. The fly was in there, inside his body. He had gone through the 11th grade and passed a general studies course in biology. He didn't care for insects, but wasn't ignorant of their behavior. He knew that all they did was breed and what they used as a source of their sustenance. He knew what was going on inside his body. His skin crawled with the certainty that he was being taken over, used as a host. Hatch started to turn. He would race back to his car and go to town and get Doc Winters to examine him. Then what? What if Winters, who was too old to practice five years ago, couldn't find anything? Or what if he simply didn't believe him? He had also been to Winters three years ago spouting stories about having seen UFOs on Carter's Ridge. But that was because he was crazy drunk. This was different. He held onto the vertical support dipped his hand into the lake, and washed the smeared blood from his side. He felt better when the wound was cleaned. When he realized he had a bottle of beer left, he fell to his knees and finished it off. He jammed his finger into the mouth of the bottle and flipped it up into the air. Before it splashed into the lake, he pushed his finger into the side as deep as it would go. But there was no fly. No small and wanted object curled up in a recessed corner of his innards. There was nothing except his frustration and the beat of his heart. His finger was poised at the top of his stomach. He thought he could feel something tear between the lungs and stomach, but since he felt no pain, he couldn't be positive he injured himself. He wanted to avoid that, if possible. That's what was so unusual about all this. Hatch felt nothing. Not the gash in his side, not his poking about, not pushing in on the internal organs, though he wasn't quite certain which gooey, gelatinous mass was which. He pushed harder, trying to get better access when the gash of his right side split open. He quickly pulled out his finger. His entire hand, not simply the index finger and his knuckles, were reddened. The wound was now big enough to accommodate two or three fingers. His entire fist, if he was so inclined. He looked about again. No beer left. He was on his own. No job to return to. No life worth mentioning. This has to be a dream. A nightmare. But it wasn't. Bubbles on the surface of the pond where fish were coming up for air. The ravens cry out in the thicket to his right. A swarm of flies hovering in the center of the pond. He knew about the swarms of midge flies that billowed up with each full moon on Lake Victoria in Africa. He knew how their brown mass consumed miles of sky and dominated life for hundreds of miles in each direction. He knew how they terrorized all who stood in their way. 
What if they attacked? No time for that now. Only the urgency at hand. He leaned to his right so his head dropped as close to his ribcage as possible and pulled back a flap of skin. Instead of stretching, it came away, opening up a large hole, as if he had pulled back a sheet of wallpaper exposing the wall beneath. Instead of plasterboard, there were ribs and muscle and fiber and movement. Like he had peeked into the big tent of the world's most unusual circus. He pulled a little more and the flap widened, revealing the pulsating base of his heart. He was staring at his essence. He was watching his heart pump him alive. Hatch was watching his own goddamn heart. This is amazing. Fucking unbelievable amazing, he said. The right side of his body from hip to shoes was covered in small red droplets. But neither the loss of blood nor the gaping wound through which he could easily pass a softball had any effect on his stability or coherence. I gotta show this shit to somebody, he said spinning around as if an audience was waiting for his presentation. No, not yet, he said catching himself. There was the problem of the missing fly, which by now had staked out a piece of Hatch's viscera for himself, who was at this moment multiplying, duplicating, furthering its species at the expense of Donald Hatch, substitute teacher to the masses. What he had to do could only be completed in private, and never recounted to anybody, lest he be called a madman. Madman, he murmured quietly. Doc Winters would throw him out of his office if he came by with this tale. He'd take one look at the gaping wound, stitch him up, entombing the fly, and have him committed for observation. Hatch needed a drink. Badly. Quickly. No store was going to sell him a six-pack at this hour, and certainly not with this minor problem. He had to get the fly, get covered up, and get a drink. Quickly. Hatch jammed his hand into his guts and probed around with a renewed sense of urgency. He ran his fingers along his small intestines and the large intestines. He was amused and amazed at how clearly and simply the excavation went. No pain or spasms of apprehension or gush of blood. He was focused, taken with a sense of clarity. His mission was too important to be diverted by faint of heart, even if he could actually see it. The more Hatch probed, the faster his heart pumped. The faster it pumped, the more captivated he became with its throbbing pulse, and the more it reacted to the visceral input of its own existence. Hatch knew no man had ever experienced what he was witnessing. No doctor had ever had a live cadaver on which to experiment, to test, and prod, and manipulate. He sat on the top of one of the vertical logs supporting the pier, glaring into the heart of Hatch's heart. No man has come before me, and none shall come after he said, trying to recall the biblical reference. Then he realized he had heard it in a soap opera. He laughed. His insides jiggled. He laughed again. His insides convulsed. He flicked his rib. One, then another, like he was playing a xylophone. He took a deep breath and his lungs expanded. He exhaled, and the gleaming gray balloons contracted. But there was no fly. He continued to poke about but couldn't find the fly. Finally, he realized that he would have to go deeper. If he was to rid himself of this pestilential interloper, then he would have to make a greater commitment. There was no point in looking around for help anymore. He was alone except for the raven's fish and pocket of flies that hovered over the space where he had first cast his line, where he thought the fly that had gotten into his body had come from. They were watching him. Hatch could tell. They were watching and calculating and laughing at him. They were making odds and taking bets that he wouldn't find their brother and laughing at him. He could hear the swarm laughing. It gave him reason to pause. Hatch watched them hover right over the spot on the lake. He'd been coming down here since he was a kid, always the same spot and always the same success. He knew every cove and contour of this lake. It had been good to him, and for its generosity, he had kept it a secret. From friends in school to friends who stayed with him through two wives, too many jobs to mention, six months in jail for assault, and a stay in the county hospital after he rammed his motorcycle into a brick wall after a night of drinking. Hatch sensed this was a defining moment in his life. 
He'd had several already and knew they demanded complete attention and resolve. There was the time he found out his second wife was cheating on him. The time he found out his parents never loved each other. The time he knew he didn't have the intellectual capacity or curiosity to become the architect he had wanted to be from childhood. And soon after that, the times he realized he didn't care if he got fired or about the value of what others thought of him. This was such a moment. This was a clever, insidious adversary who had sacrificed itself and was prepared to take Hatch with him. Hatch examined his wound. It was no longer a point of curiosity or amazement. It was Hatch. One part of the man that he never thought he would be privy to. There was no one to help him through this but himself. There was a rumble in his center, coming from his stomach. He stopped moving so he could listen. It was churning up from his stomach. A loud belch rumbled up from his belly until it came out in one sickening cacophony that brought a grimace of relief to his face. Sounds good to me, he said, first noticing the swarm of flies that drifted from their spot in the center of the lake. The faint gray cloud was now smaller, darker, more concentrated. They had tightened their formation. Hatch wanted a drink. He needed one badly. Now. Not in a while, or later, or at some distant date he might never reach. Those fire ants were real. Doc Winters was an incompetent fool. He should never have trusted him. The two blue UFOs and the smaller red one were real, too. These were defining moments no one believed in. No one understood. Hatch's lips smacked together. He recognized the habit. Right before he began to shake, he began to get a tightening feeling around his lips. On a woman, it might be described as a pucker. On this man, it was a warning. At first, he thought the formation was becoming still denser. Then Hatch realized it was moving in his direction. It was getting smaller, more focused, closer. He moved back a few steps, almost stumbling over his fishing pole, the lightning rod for his current predicament. He imagined flies converging from every part of the lake into this cloud that grew still darker and larger all at once. What do you want? he yelled out, the index finger of his left hand dripping red, pointing accusingly in their direction. He pulled up his pants that had drooped so low they were making it impossible for him to move about. He was halfway back toward shore. He could run for cover, but only his car assured him of complete safety. That was up on the crest of the hill overlooking the lake. If he was going to make a run for it, he had better do it now. Then he realized what was happening. It was a diversion. How clever. How diabolically cunning they were. There was a plan here. They were distracting him so that he could not attend to what was eating away at his insides. Not this time, you bastards, Hatch said, spinning around and running back up the pier. He could see his car, maybe 30 yards, but it was all uphill. He glanced over his shoulder. He had to get enough momentum while he was on the flat pier to carry him up the hill. So much to think about, to devise, and follow through without a drink. Without a drink, even the slightest nuance of life was a giant hill he had to climb with no legs, he'd once told the counselor. The social worker nodded unsympathetically and gave him another appointment for the following week. Hatch tore up the slip of paper and never returned to the state clinic. He was running. Hard. He didn't want to look down to see what was happening to his insides. He imagined that if he ran too long, they would spill out of the opening. He was almost to the shoreline at the end of the pier. He would get to his car and drive to town and find a beer and pour right into the wound and drown the fly. How ingenious, he thought just before he slammed into one of the support poles. He staggered back, clutching his side. He began to cough uncontrollably. His chest exploded in raking, convulsing pain. He noticed a group of women walking along the shoreline, but they were so far away he couldn't be certain if he knew any of them. In trying to regain his balance, he tripped over his own feet and fell from the pier into the water. He gulped in water. He could feel the cold flood his insides, filling him up. His body quickly sank to the bottom. He was drowning the fly. That was something he had never thought of doing. He reached down and grabbed onto a rock until he was secure, until he was certain the fly would drown if only he could hold on.
Donald Hatch, of 21 Suffern Street, was pulled from the bottom of the lake not 10 minutes after the three women notified the police, but it was too late. There was nothing unusual about the drowning or the physical condition of the victim. The fact that he was so intoxicated would have explained why he drowned in only five feet of water, but not why the paramedics had to pry one of his hands loose from a rock and a fly out of the other. That was Arthur Davis's The Unwelcome Guest, as read by Jake Wachholz. Jake Wachholz has finally found his career path in education and completed his first year of teaching this past year, where he taught special education math. His hobby is hobbies, and now that includes reading horror stories for Tales to Terrify. He lives in Ohio with his wife, Daughter and Dogter. Thank you, Jake. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the generous support of listeners on Patreon and through PayPal. If you're not already a member, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify for a look at all of the awesome perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and swag. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to help? Why not drop a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app? Ratings and reviews are an easy way that you can help us spread the darkness. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with editorial assistance from Brian Rollins and Summer Brooks, and original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we scare up fresh frights with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.